First of all, I'm, I'm so glad that you're all able to, to be here. I know there's been a lot of sickness and a lot of stuff like that going around, and, and I'm just so glad you're able to be here. Um, this morning, we are going to get right down to business. We have a lot that we want to cover, and um, mostly this morning, we want to make sure that what we study, we want to put it in context. Very important that our lesson that we go over this morning is in context. So we are going to spend some time in review. I want to spend just a minute giving a review of each of the chapters that we've gone over. Okay, and that's what I have on the top of your paper. There's a little block, and what I'd like to do is give each chapter a, a title or a heading, all right? That, by the way, is a good thing for you to do when you're studying on your own. If you can read a chapter and give it a title, that's kind of a way of helping to remember it. Okay, chapter one, Ephesians. That was the chapter where we repeatedly saw that phrase. Can you remember what it was? Somebody tell me. In Christ, very good, yes. We saw that over and over again, in Christ, in him. That was the lesson that we talked about, our identity in Christ, where we had those seven spiritual blessings. Okay, so on your paper, that first box, chapter one, was about spiritual blessings and our new identity in Christ. Okay, that was also the chapter where we were mainly focusing on how because of Christ, we are reconciled to God. So that's your second blank. Reconciled to God. All right, chapter two. That was the chapter where we learned that we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. And we've been saved by grace in order to display grace. All right, so that's our next point. Chapter two, saved by grace to be trophies of grace. Now, if you remember, that was also the chapter that we talked about how Jesus abolished the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles. And we went from two bodies into one. So now we have that one new society, okay? So uh, that was the chapter that we said, um, because of Christ, now we are reconciled to each other, all right? So that's our second blank because of Christ reconciled to each other. Now, we talked more about that in chapter 3. That's when we talked about the mystery of Christ, which is the what? What's the mystery of Christ in chapter 3? The church, okay? The church, okay? It is how the Gentiles, we are now fellow members of the body of Christ, right? This is the chapter where we learned that the body of Christ is now the, the, the church is now the visible body of Christ in the world before the lost, All right? And not only that, but the church is now the manifold wisdom of God to the unseen world as well, All right? That was in chapter three. So let's put that on your papers. Chapter three, the mystery of Christ, the church, the visible body of Christ, Okay. Now, with all of that in mind, we want all of that to be fresh. Now we're going to move on to Ephesians chapter 4. So if you would open in your Bibles, we're going to get to Ephesians. And by the way, this is all going to be so much easier to follow along if you have your Bibles open, and it's right in front of you as we go through these things today. Now, before we start into today's reading, I want to go back and start with a passage that you actually had in your previous lesson. So we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. 
And I'm going to be going back and forth using the ESV and the NAS, depending on which version I liked better for the passage at the time. And so I'm going to start with the NAS for this one, okay? Verse 1, <clears throat> chapter 4. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, let's stop there. Now, up until now, we have been talking about what God has done for us. We've talked about what he's given us, what he's made us, what he's done for us. And then we come to chapter four and we come to that little, we come to the word therefore. Now, now I've told you to watch for that word before because that's a word of conclusion or a word of explanation. And so Paul is telling us that he's coming to a point where he's going to start making some implications and applications of what he's just told us in the first three chapters. Okay, primarily, he's telling us that we have a responsibility. In light of everything that we've just been told in chapters 1, 2, and 3, we have a responsibility. And what is that? To walk worthy. To walk worthy. We are to walk worthy of your calling. And that's the next point on our little box there. Chapter four, therefore, walk worthy of your calling. Therefore, that's because you're saved, walk worthy. And we've got to get the order correct on this, okay? We walk worthy because we are saved. We don't walk worthy in order to become saved. And that, that'll be critical as we talk. Now, when we talk and use the word walk, I want you to think lifestyle, okay? Your walk is your lifestyle. It's your practices. And Paul is saying, when we are to walk worthy of our calling, it is going to require a change in our lifestyle, okay? Not just, not just a change in the accessories, okay? Now, the remainder of this book is about to get very practical, very specific, he is primarily addressing people who were not raised in Christian homes. So he's going to spell it all out, and he's going to be very direct. Okay? Now, as we're about to see, let's move on to Ephesians, down to chapter... Se uh, we're still in 4. We're going to go down to verse 17. This was a part of your reading this week. <clears throat> Picking up in 17. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. <clears throat> okay, for the rest of the class... We want to try to answer the question, how do I walk worthy? 
worthily. How do I walk worthy? If it is my responsibility to walk worthy, how do I do it? Okay, well, let's get started. Verse 17, look what it says. He says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles. All right, allow me to paraphrase. Don't act like pagans, okay? This is Paul, and he's got us sitting at the kitchen table. And he's telling us, you are in Christ now. Don't act like pagans. Okay? Now, I want you to look at verse 17, where he says, now this I say and testify in the Lord. You know what? He's got us by the coat collars on this one. And he's going, don't act like pagans. Okay? Now, let's, uh, that's on your handout. Number one on your handout is stop living like pagans. By the way, you could put Gentiles in there too. They would both uh, mix in. All right, Paul is explaining to us that if there is to be unity among the brethren, if God is to be glorified in our midst, then we cannot blend in with our surroundings. Okay, remember what we learned the other week. We are the temple, okay? And the temple doesn't blend in. The temple, it sets apart. It shines, all right? And that's what we're to do, okay? So we're not to live like the Gentiles. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, let's keep reading. Look what it says in verse 17, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, now, futility, that means meaningless. It means empty. It means nothing. There's a story about a, a Holocaust survivor. His name was Viktor Frankl. He was a doctor, and he wrote the book, Man's Search for Meaning. And he tells of, uh, in it, he tells of the atrocities that he experienced in the um, prison camp, the Auschwitz Nazi prison camp. And he talks about how at one point they gave a job to a bunch of the workers in which they were told to dig a pile of dirt and put it in a wheelbarrow and then push it to the other side of camp, empty the dirt. And then the next day, their job was to take that same pile of dirt and return it to the spot in which they dug it from. And then day after day, all they were told to do was to move that pile of dirt back and forth back and forth. And he talked about how the meaningless task, it was psychological torture on the people in the camp and that some of them went mad and some of them even lost their life about it because of it. Paul, uh, that, that's an exercise in futility. And Paul is saying that the Gentile's mind is on the meaningless. It's on the unimportant. It's on the things that don't matter. All right, now let me ask you something. What do you spend your time thinking about? What fills your head? Is it the mental equivalent of moving dirt from one side to the next? Because if it is, you only do that for so long before it starts to affect you. Now, why? Why? Are they futile in their thinking? Well, we get some understanding in verse 18. 
Verse 18 says, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Their thoughts are futile because God is not a part of the equation. Okay? Now, they may start out with a nice thought. Unbelievers are capable of nice thoughts. The, the problem is, though, that they become futile and darkened because God is not at the center of their lives. Okay? Notice verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. All right? It says they've become callous. All right, now I want you to think about a callus. You know, if you have a callus on your hand, it becomes tough. It becomes tough there. Your skin is not as sensitive to that spot as it once was. When we become callous, things don't shock us like they used to. And what happens is people aren't shocked by things anymore, then it's easier to indulge in it, and then from there it spins into a practice. And you can kind of see the order of that. I was reading about a movie <clears throat> that was recently out that is making the news because it had a record number of F-words, supposedly had over 500. It also was known to have at least 22 graphic, explicit scenes of sex and nudity. We're talking the full frontal male nudity and female nudity for the purpose of sex as opposed to humor or you know, a, a Holocaust scene or something like that. <clears throat> this was not some little porn movie put together by a bunch of unknowns. It was uh, put together by big stars. It was nominated for every respectable uh, movie award that is given. And sadly, it filled theaters because we're callous. We have a society that is callous, but Paul says, not in the church. The church should blush because we're not to act like pagans. Okay, verse 20. He says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. He is saying believers are to be different. You see, one of the biggest arguments that the world has against the church is that we act the same way that they do. We watch the same TV shows. We go to the same movies. We wear the same clothes. We're just as whiny and cranky as they are. We're, we're just as quick to complain as they are. We're just as selfish and, and impatient as the next guy in the grocery line. Okay? And Paul says... You did not learn Christ this way. Now, let's read on. Verse 22. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Okay, Paul is telling us that we're to stop thinking, we're to stop believing, we're to stop acting like the pagans. We're to put that off to the side. And then look at 23, because that tells us what we're to do instead. He says we're to renew our minds. All right, that's to think biblically. 
we're to renew our minds and, and, and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God. Now, we get some very good, um, very simply, we're being told, stop acting like pagans and start acting like Jesus, right? And that's the next thing on our paper is number two, start living like Christ, now, why is this so important? Well, there's a message that we're, we keep seeing over and over again in the book of Ephesians. And that is, as we, as we act like Christ, it glorifies God. It's putting his qualities on display for the lost world to see. And then it also does something else. It promotes unity within the body. And see, we, we have peace among the brothers. And then what does that do? It glorifies God as well. So it in turn does that. Okay, now he's going to give us some very specific examples of how we can stop acting like pagans. We're going to get right down to it here. Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Okay, next thing for our stop list is falsehood. Okay, stop doing it. Your old person used to be deceitful and sneaky and manipulative. Your old person used to exaggerate and embellish. Okay? You used to speak falsely as a way of promoting yourself or protecting yourself because those were your concerns before, but not anymore. Okay, So Paul says, no more of that. So let's add number three is stop falsehood. Number four is start truth. And why is that so important? Well, he tells us. Look at what he says in verse, at the end of verse 25. Because we are members one of another. We don't lie to each other because we're one, because we're connected. Think of how important trust is to unity. Nothing breaks a relationship faster than deceit or falsehood. You know, you can think about it. You can, you can spend your life building up a relationship and just have one act of deceit and everything comes crushing down. And so Paul says, stop that. We start telling the truth. Stop falsehood. Now, does that mean that we get to say any old thing we want, any old way we want, any old time we want, as long as it's truth? Okay, no. Now, look at what he says at the beginning of chapter 2. Or no, um, beginning of this chapter, verse 2. Sorry about that. <clears throat> he says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. There's our filter. That's our delivery right there. Okay? And we're going to talk more of this as we go on. All right, verse 26. Let's move on. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. How do you handle your anger? If somebody makes you angry, somebody makes you mad, how do you handle that? Okay, well, number five, we're to stop sinful anger. And six, start dealing with anger biblically. All right, Paul knows there are going to be times that you are angry. In fact, there are times things that should make you angry. 
All right, now, if you look, however, in verse 31, look at the end of that, where it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger be put away from you. All right, that means there's anger that's wrong, and there's anger that is righteous. And in that righteous anger, we're not to sin in either. Okay. Now, John Piper has an interesting explanation of this verse. He says this verse makes at least two assertions about anger. Number one, that there is a time to get angry. And number two, the time to stay angry is short. Okay. When is the time to get angry? And we're just going to do this very briefly, by the way. But the time, if your anger is directed towards something that makes God angry... That would be a righteous anger. That's a good time to get angry. Um, Piper, again, has two good points when he defines righteous anger. I like the way he said it. He said, good anger is based on God and mingled with grief. And, and he was um, using Jesus in the Gospels as his um, example of that. With righteous anger, the target is a sin against God, where God is being assaulted, not where we're being assaulted. And for any time where there is a, a time to be anger, angry righteously, we must always do everything with the character of Christ. Okay? Never an excuse not to. All right, Paul says, let not the sun go down upon your anger. Paul is putting some limits on things. Okay? He is warning us not to feed our anger or nurse our anger, which can be very easy to do. Um, it used to be said that the day of your anger is the day of your reconciliation. Needs to be. Now, obviously, there are going to be times, there are going to be things in the world that make us angry that we have no control over. But when we're talking about angry, angry, anger issues, excuse me, within the body, within a marriage, Paul is saying, you deal with those in a timely fashion. Okay? Now, and here's why. Look at what he says in verse 27. <clears throat> And give no opportunity to the devil. Paul knows unresolved anger issues give the devil opportunity. And not only that, but there's a fine line between righteous anger and unrighteous anger, and, and the devil exploits that. Okay? All right, verse 28. Let's move on. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Oh, this is a good one. Paul says, you may have been a thief before, but stop it. Stop it. He says, um, and apparently it was common for, um, and even expected for slaves to steal from their masters. And Paul says, stop stealing. He says, you go out and you get yourself a good, honest job so that you can not only support yourself, but have enough to share. Okay, this is radical. This is radical because he's explaining to us that our new life in Christ is not about getting, it's about giving. Okay, let me ask you something. Are you teaching your children to work? Are you teaching them about an honest day's work? You know, the world is teaching them that they are entitled. Okay. Are you teaching, are you encouraging that? Because the mentality of entitlement is in polar opposition to what Paul is teaching. Okay, so next on our paper, we're going to stop stealing and we're going to start 
an honest, hardworking, generous lifestyle. <clears throat> Excuse me. We could also put stop taking and start giving if you really want to simplify it. <clears throat> I've shared before about how um, Bob and I used to teach my sons a Sunday school class when they were little. Uh, we started teaching them when they were like three and became just so attached to them that we just kept moving up with them as they, um, as they got older. <clears throat> and there was this one little boy, his name was Jonathan, and we especially, especially enjoyed him. He was a sweet, sweet little fellow, always smiling ear to ear. And one day, uh, his father came to the door, <clears throat> said, uh, can I speak with you? And I said, okay. So I went out into the hallway, and the father stood there with little Jonathan, and they both looked just stricken. They were so solemn. And I said, what, what, what's the matter? And the father said, um, Jonathan has something he'd like to tell you. And I said, okay. And I kind of squatted down so I could be eye to eye with him, and, and um, his little lips started to quiver, and his little eyes started to fill up with tears. And he said, um, I stole this. And in his hand was a little white plastic silverware knife. And I recognized it. When we would play with Play-Doh, I would have a bag of plastic white knives, and I would let them cut and play with the Play-Doh. And at the end of the class, uh, the big Ziploc bag was passed around, and everybody put their knife and put it into the plastic bag. And um, I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's common. If during cleanup I found one knife laying around, it meant nothing to me. I'd tossed it in the garbage. You know, I certainly didn't go to try to find the bag and keep it. it. It really was, it meant nothing to me. And so I almost started to say that. I almost started to say, oh, that old thing, just, I never even missed it. Why, well, just go in there and throw that in the garbage. Almost did that. But instead, I just really sensed that I was on holy ground. And I looked at the dad, and I had a pretty good idea of what happened in their home that week. And I knew what the father was trying to teach. And I looked at that little buddy of mine, and he was so broken. And so I took that white knife like it was a valuable treasure, because it was. You know? And I took it from him, and I said, um, thank you for returning it. And he said, can you forgive me? And I said, oh, yes, yes, I can forgive you. And I gave him a big hug. But, you see, that father was putting on display for his son the, the goodness of God, the grace of God. You know, he was teaching that son not to steal, but to work. He was teaching that child that if he did steal, he was to humble himself and, and make ret retribution. He was teaching that little boy that he was to respect people's property. You see, the world said, it's a stupid plastic knife. What's the big deal? And Paul says, it is a big deal. Stop taking. Start giving. 
Think about the impact on the body if we were to treat one another like that. And think of how the glory of God, think of the impact it has on a watching world to see something like that. Okay, move on. Let's move on. Verse 29. Okay, this is where things get really a little uncomfortable here. Uh, verse 29, and I'm using the NAS for this one. It says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Okay, have you noticed how much of this is about what we say in our communication? All right, the next week, we are going to talk more about the unwholesome words and the coarse talk and the filthy talk. He brings that up again in chapter 5. So we'll revisit this, that uh, next time. Uh, this time, we want to take a look at two different things. Number nine, we want to look at how we are to stop unwholesome, destructive speech and number 10, start graceful and edifying speech. Some of your translations <clears throat> may use the word building up, okay? There is only one kind of speech that is supposed to come out of our mouths, and it is edifying. It's the kind that is good for building up. It is the kind that is healing, the kind that is strengthening, the kind that promotes a person to grow in Christ, okay? That is what we are to speak. Now, why? Well, look what it says. So that it will give grace to those who hear. Now, remember, we're the trophies of grace. We're the invitation. We're the ones that have experienced grace. And so we're to be the ones that display it. We're to be displaying it to our children and to our neighbors. We are the showcase of God's grace. So it's got to be coming out of our mouths. Think of it this way. Paul tells us that your very reason for talking has changed. Your very reason for talking has changed because you are now in Christ. Okay, now let's remember what grace is. Grace is something undeserved. Grace is something unexpected. So that means somebody talks to you and they deserve a rude comment. You're going to give grace. You're going to give the unexpected. You're going to give the undeserved. Okay, now he gives us some more details of what that is going to look like. He tells us that we are to have a word that is good for edification according to the need of the moment. Let's talk about that, the need of the moment. The word, the edifying word that comes out of your mouth is going to fit the need. Now, that has a lot to do with timing, doesn't it? Okay? It's going to be a word that the situation needs. Now, a couple things to keep in mind. Knowing the word, the edifying word, that fits the need of the moment is probably not going to be the thing that you instantaneously blurt out of your mouths. Okay? Now, it's possible. It's possible God would give it to you that quickly. That could happen. But, as a general rule, um, the, the, um, the direction is be quick to hear and slow to speak. Okay? 
Paul and James work together on this one. That whole idea of, okay, we're going to think before we open our mouths, okay? So if we are to be speaking according to the need of the moment, that means we're going to be the first to hear. We want to be the first to listen. We're talking about understanding. We want to be the first to understand what they are saying. Now, that may require asking a question. And, and as we're asking a question, you know, we're praying, we're thinking, what is the edifying thing to say? What is the need for the moment? What is going to bring grace? And then we open our mouths to speak. Okay? Now, along those lines, a good thing to remember is that you don't ever have to finish a sentence. You start talking and you realize, man, I have, I have rushed into this. I am answering this too quickly. Or what is coming out of my mouth is not graceful. It's not edifying. You can stop. Retreat. Redo. Okay? Now, another thing about speaking according to the need of the moment, it is possible that the moment needs silence. That's always a possibility. It could be that the person needs to hear something, but the timing is not right. So silence is um, the answer. It may be that the moment, the words for the moment are to be said by somebody other than you. Okay, that is a possibility. All right, but again, can you think of what this would do for unity if we were to speak to one another like this and to weigh our words before we start talking? Okay, let's, uh, let's move on. Verse 30. <clears throat> And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Okay, first of all, I want you to notice something. Bitterness, anger, wrath, all of that stuff were to put away. I want you to notice that he tells them to stop it. Put it away. Okay? He doesn't try to psychoanalyze. He doesn't try to empathize with them. He doesn't say, pray that you might stop doing these. He says, stop it. When my kids were little, there were times that I would say, put that down. Stop doing that. You know, I didn't say, okay, let's pray that you quit poking your brother. <laughs> no. No, there are times you just say, stop that. Okay, that's what Paul is doing here. Remember, he's talking to the family and he's telling them, okay, stop that. And notice what he tells them in verse 30. He reminds them of something. He reminds them that they have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. They have everything they need to stop doing these things. Okay, now what I want to do is give you a brief definition of what these are. We're going to go through it quickly, but if we're to be obedient and stop doing them, then we need to understand a little bit more about them. Okay, bitterness. I'm going to give you what the Greeks called this. The Greeks said this was a long-standing resentment as the spirit which refuses to be reconciled. Okay? Now, when you're talking bitterness, you're talking about something that develops over time. You're nursing your anger. You've been telling yourself, I have a reason to be mad about that. Okay? And that's where your bitterness starts to build up. By the way, if we are not dealing with our anger before the sun goes down, this is where this is headed. Okay? Bitterness. And Paul says, stop it. Wrath. 
Some of your versions may say rage. All right, this is when you explode. You get furious and you explode. It's that explosive outburst of anger. The Greeks used to use this word when they were describing the way uh, you have a big pile of straw and it catches on fire. You have this big flame and then everything kind of fizzles in, in, in just as quickly. All right, that's wrath. And Paul says, stop it. Anger. All right, now this is the word we've talked about this earlier. It's the same meaning, except now we're getting angry over sinful things. Where This is the sinful anger. Now, where wrath was explosive, anger is a little more subtle, a little more inner, and it usually has to do with um, the purpose of revenge. You may be plotting with anger. And Paul says, stop it. Put it away. Clamor. This refers to shouting, yelling, screaming. Paul says to the believer in Christ, put it away. Stop it. Now, obviously, if someone is in immediate danger, then it would be okay to yell and shout. Okay, say for instance that your husband is on fire. Okay, that would be okay to yell at him. Now, I thought that was probably a good rule of thumb for us to try to determine if the need for the moment ever requires yelling or screaming. Ask yourself, is anyone on fire? And, uh, or in danger of in any way. Okay, then we can do it. But if someone is not in immediate danger, there's going to be a better way of handling it. Okay, slander. This is a big one for women, I'm afraid. Um, you might have the word blaspheme. And it's a broad word, describes a lot of different things, but it is primarily describing a verbal abuse that will hurt or discredit a person's reputation. In this particular passage, it is referring to speaking evil about somebody. It can also be speaking truthfully about somebody to people who have no business knowing things. Okay? A lot of times, slander will include falsehood, or you might leave just enough out to to, uh, manipulate a situation. In almost every case, we are trying to build a case against another person so that we look like the victim. And Paul says, stop it. Malice is our last one. And that's your basic word for evil. Basic word. It's the idea of being mean-spirited and hateful, that you're trying to harm somebody either emotionally or physically. Paul says, put it off. Now, something that we need to see, the very fact that Paul has mentioned these. Now, these people did not likely just get upset for nothing and show these types of emotions. Paul is, Paul is explaining to us that there are going to be times when people wrong you and people in the body may wrong you. And so, what are we to do? Verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Okay, that means instead of being bitter, we forgive. Instead of being angry, we forgive. Instead of slandering, we go back, we show kindness, we show tenderness, 
we forgive. Clamor, we're tender-hearted. We're kind. We replace that with forgiving. And we're not just, we are to be tender-hearted, kind, and forgiving, and not just to the people who are nice to us. You see, anybody can do that. Now, why? Why are we called to do it? Well, look what it said in verse 32. Because we've been forgiven. Because we're the grace displays. Because we've experienced grace, now we are in turn to show it, even whether it's to the world or the body. How do we do that? What would that look like? Well, I want to close with a neat little story. Uh, It's a retelling of a story that was originally written by a woman named Josephine Legan, and it was entitled, Your Daffodils Are Pretty. And what she does is in the article that she wrote, she was um, telling about a family that taught her a lot about forgiveness and the many forms that forgiveness can take. Their name was Parsons. On one occasion, Mr. Parsons watched young Josephine get swatted by the broom of a mean old lady in town who didn't like the neighborhood children getting too close to her property. He stopped Josephine and told her, go back and tell Mrs. Brink that you forgive her for hitting you. Say, I forgive you to Mrs. Brink. Mrs. Mr. Parsons smiled. Forgiveness comes in many forms, he said. You don't actually have to say, I forgive you. A simple smile will do. You might just tell her her daffodils are pretty. It seemed dumb to young Josephine, but in those days, children did what their elders told them to do. So she went back and mumbled something to Mrs. Brink about her daffodils being pretty. Mrs. Brink looked shocked. But it was the last time Josephine ever felt the back of her broom. On another occasion, Josephine and several of her third grade girlfriends put a handful of pencil shavings into the Parsons girl's sandwich just to be mean and make her mad. But she didn't get mad. Instead, the next day, without any sign of repentance from her persecutors, the Parsons girl brought everyone in the class a large, beautiful, delicious, hand-decorated cookie which said, Jesus loves you. She would go on to say that she remembered those demonstrations of forgiveness far better than any sermon that she had heard. You see, she saw grace on display. Can you imagine if the body were to treat each other like that? The unity that we would experience and the grace display we would be to the world. Your last point, number 12, is start kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is so powerful. We thank you that you spell it out for us. You have given us examples and truth about how we are to walk worthy. First, you've made clear what you've done for us, and we praise your name for that. Now, Father, I pray that you will help us as saved women walk worthy, that we will walk in a manner worthy of of what you've done for us. 
and that we might be a display to the world of all your goodness and your grace. And we ask this in your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.